0: Welcome back and happy new year thanks again for joining us for another year of in situ science this year we've got a whole lot of things lined up we've got live events more videos coming out more fundraising and of course a whole lot of new podcasts as usual i'm your host james o'hamlin and this episode i'm joined by herpetologist behavioral ecologist and natural historian martin whiting martin thanks for coming on the podcast Thanks, James. It's an honor to be on Institute Science. I've
1: been following the podcast for quite a while now.
0: Great! Well, I know you have at least one listener. Then that's good. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should say thanks for having me here. We're we're sitting recording this in your your library.
1: Yeah, um, I'm very fond of this particular library. I've always dreamt of having my own natural history library and. We bought this house I guess three or four years ago Um, and the room that we're sitting in was I think some kid's bedroom. We knocked down (laughs) a wall into the adjacent room and we've filled it with um, natural history books so this is the place that that I like to read and and work on on papers
0: and grants and things like that. It is a beautiful space I should Paint a picture for people listening that the walls are just lined with bookshelves covering everything from, I don't know, there's a book on Chua Towers and there's a biology of rattlesnakes and National Geographic editions and all sorts of stuff. There's art on the walls, there's things in jars, there's skulls. It's, 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 yeah,
1: there's, there's a lot of history here as well. I've got um, a large sort of piece of pottery that I got in Mexico many years ago that has a big tennis lizard wrapped around it. I, what else have I got in here? Um, that's worth pointing out. We've got a wooden crocodile or carve. Yeah. A wooden no. carving of a, of a <laughs> crocodile that is from New Guinea. We have, um, quite a bit of African stuff that sort of reflects my my heritage I guess we've got some emu eggs, we've got some ostrich eggs, we've got um an Ashelian hand ax and a replica of an Australopithecus skull, a Zulu, um it's called a knobcury, which is really a club that they would use in um in close quarters fighting. I've got a, a a sort of large pot from Mozambique And then maybe we should also say We're up against this amazing rock face and... <laughs> Tell us about the rock face, Martin <laughs> So
0: this
1: is at your house Well, you know, I have worked on a lot of Rock-dwelling lizards in my time And um, when I saw this property I This house, I had to have it <laughs> Um it's basically, yeah, we live in this pole house that is um, set up against probably, would you say, a 10-meter rock face? Uh oh, if not more, yeah. If, yeah, if not more. And um, in fact, if you look out the library window during the daytime, it is not unusual to see Cunningham skinks. <laughs> so there's a, a family of Cunningham skinks that live on this this rock face, which is is great for me because I work on... On um, family living skinks and um, Cunningham skinks um, it, are, are very long-lived skinks that live in in families, and you can have up to five different generations living together. Um, they get to at least their their fifties and probably Is it fifty years li- of age. Yeah, yeah. all right.
0: These yeah, are old lizards.
1: Yeah, these are, are old lizards. So. um it's a real bonus having having these guys living
0: you know um in my back garden, so to speak, so some people might not realize that lizards are quite social things they they can seem quite i don't know a little robotic little another the word reptilian is sometimes used sometimes used quite derogatively to be quite it, it implies a primitive way of thinking, but these are quite complex societies they can live in.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, And Australia is quite unique in that there's this large radiation of of lizards that we call the Agernia group, which consists of multiple genera, um, but all quite closely related. And many of these species um, live in, in family groups. So they have complex sociality. You have High levels of, of monogamy, which is also very unusual mm. for, well, for just about any animal really, <laughs> but, but, you know, for lizards in, in particular, um, many species of, of lizards are quite promiscuous, but here's a group where you have very high levels of, of monogamy. Um, in the Cunningham skinks, you know, males and females would, would stay together for potentially decades. And the same is true of what we call the sleepy lizard in South Australia. Um, They live; they're also very long-lived, at least into their fifties, and and probably live much longer than that. And they pair for life. So, So are these
0: these shinglebacks? Yeah, that's right. A
1: shingleback. Yeah. It's one of these crazy species that has, you know, five or six different common names, (laughs) depending on the state that you're in. So in Western Australia, they are the bobtail, they're the sleepy lizard in South Australia, the shingleback in New South Wales, and there's possibly another one or two different (laughs) names. Um, But yeah, getting back to what you were saying, they... Have complex sociality, so you can have multiple generations of offspring that are all siblings living together in a family, and um, you know with with delayed dispersal, um, and that's extremely unusual for um, for lizards in in general. So there's mm. this amazing radiation in Australia, and because they have relatively primitive parental care it's more um, through parent offspring association that they get these these benefits Um, it's a very good model system for understanding the early evolution of sociality so you know people tend to study very complex um, highly sophisticated social animals with very complex social systems like uh, many of the primates and cooperatively breeding birds and meerkats, where they have, you know, advanced parental care and um, and very high levels of, of cooperative breeding and things like that, but that doesn't really help us understand how family living might have evolved in the first place, mm. and that's where these lizards um, have much greater potential you could say they they're really um ah! oh that is <laughs> Which, <laughs> winnie the the wirehead fox terrier just doing a, <laughs> a perimeter check um but yeah so so the agonia group are really a good system for understanding the early evolution of sociality what are the some of the simple triggers that would um send a species from you know being largely Solitary or having low levels of, of social interaction to actually living in a, in a family group. So we've been, um, or, or quite a few people in Australia, have been trying to um, understand what those those triggers
0: are. So to give people an idea, I guess gurnia are kind of big, chunky skink things, right? But there's a whole lot of different types of them. Yeah, that's right.
1: That's right. And if you look at the whole group, it actually includes things like Um, blue tongue skinks that Mm -hmm. people would be familiar with and the real advantage with the group is the wide range of social and mating systems so so they're not all social well um you've got to be careful how you use the word social because Mm -hmm. even lizards that you might think are relatively asocial still have um you know quite frequent social interactions um, or certainly during the breeding season they you know their there are encounter rates with rival males with potential mates it's just that they're not living in a in a family group and they don't have complex um, sociality per se but often um, you get species that might be defending a territory and they have a whole neighborhood of other individuals that they they have to keep track of. Mm. So we have to be careful about um, calling things, you know, social or asocial. Um, But within the agonia group, on the one spectrum, you'd have things like Blueies, which are largely solitary. Um, They are quite promiscuous. So females would mate with multiple males. They don't form um, strong pair bonds. Well, they probably have quite weak pair bonds, and then you have um, the family living species that that have very strong pair bonds and um, have persistent um, um groups that that you know um, go from one season to the next
0: well the the first video in Se science Ever made was actually following one of your students out into the field. That's right, I Trees remember it. And that form, yeah, these big uh, gatherings, what would you call it? They just find a little crevice in a tree or a rock and there can be bunches yeah. of them in there.
1: Yeah, that's right. And that's a family living species. They are facultatively... Um, they facultatively live in, in family groups, so they don't have to. Mm. Um, they're a, a much smaller species than... For example, something like a Cunningham skink or a, or a Bluey, but um, they have relatively high levels of, of monogamy. They have offspring that um, would stay with their parents possibly through a couple of breeding seasons. Um, they're relatively long-lived. So yeah, that's, that's a great example and we were particularly interested in that species because you can find them on, on rocks and living in rock crevices, and you can also find them on, on trees.
0: So if you're looking at the ev- evolution of sociality, like you say, you're obviously asking why you would bother being social in the first place. So you're obviously interested in what benefits there are for being social. Yep. What, what benefits are there to a lizard to be injured. that is Winnie. <laughs> she's got she's got a very strong
1: opinion on on the matter um we'll just close her um we suspect that she's heard the possum and is checking on the possum oh man
0: social skinks (laughs) oh yes well i'm trying to remember what What the question was some of the
1: some of the benefits so one of the big benefits that's emerged from work by um a guy called dave o'connor and also jeff Weil, who is at UTAS and he's one of my my collaborators um and and he i mean i should just say that he's done some really amazing work understanding the evolution of, of sociality in in Agonia, and he's got a a long term study of, of the white skink in Tasmania. But basically, what what Dave and Jeff have uncovered is that when you're a a baby skink, it's a very survival is um, is is tough. It's um, it's I was going to say a dog eat dog world out there but you could you could just as easily say it's a lizard world out there and they're these they're high levels of of cannibalism and that also sort of emerged in julia's work that you mentioned a bit earlier Um, so basically adult lizards will happily gobble down a baby or a young skink that isn't one of their own, mm. so it basically pays to hang out with your parents, because as long as your parents are nearby, um, your chances of of being eaten by an unrelated adult practically go to zero. Mm. They're, they're um, it's just it's not going to happen. But if you leave your natal area. Um, where your your parents live and you venture forth as a as a youngster um, there's a very high probability that you're going to be eaten by um, an adult an unrelated adult so basically you get this association um, the the social bond that that develops because you hang around your natal area um, with your parents and you you get these these benefits um, um,
0: the, of of protection, basically mm. from your your parents. So there's a there's a turn of phrase that people often use when they refer to someone's a lizard brain as being this very primitive, instinctive part of someone's brain. That's probably also a little bit unfair as well, because I imagine if you're in a big social network, you you've, you've kind of got to have enough cognitive capacity to keep track of. Your different relatives and things, right?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. So we're very interested in this idea of um, of social complexity, and social complexity involves keeping track of other individuals in your neighbourhood, um, of knowing who um, who your rivals are, where their territories are, um, who your your competition is, and um, and what what we've also been working on is this uh, is testing this idea of behavioral flexibility, and behavioral flexibility is really a cognitive term. So it has to do with whether you can you can essentially learn new tricks or you can learn. To solve an old problem in a different way, and we've been um, in the last few years, we've been testing behavioural flexibility in a bunch of species of agonia with different mating systems and different social systems, and um, and yeah, I mean, it's what what is emerging is that that lizards are actually quite smart um, they can, they're very good at reversals. So a reversal is when you, um, they learn a particular task, for example, discriminating between two different colors or shapes, and then you switch the the reward and suddenly the unrewarded color or shape is what you need to, you need to relearn the, the correct choice. And a lot of animals struggle with that. And it turns out that lizards are quite good at, um, at reversal learning. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of that, that phrase of, you know, referring to the reptilian, the primitive reptilian brain, um, it doesn't really hold water anymore. And, um, we, we are in the early stages of, of understanding the evolution of cognition and understanding how social systems might drive cognition um but more and more people are um sort of embracing this idea that you know cognition is another trait that is um affected by selection and we need to to understand how it might be driving evolution in in lizards and
0: and driving the evolution of of brain size for example hmm. the the lizard brain turn of phrase is something that i use a lot myself so i have to I have to stop it <sighs> at- <laughs> You (laughs) are going to have to think about that again, James. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to ask you about flat lizards too. Ah. So in, in this study with all of the paraphernalia you have, there's one thing that stands out, which is a framed letter, uh, from one Sir David. How did you, you've worked with Sir David. Uh, Yeah. Tell me about that. that.
1: (laughs) Well, that was definitely a career highlight. Um, I'm obviously originally from South Africa. Every Australian is pretty good at um, picking my accent. (laughs) Uh, Although it's kind of hybridized over the years. And I used to work on the Okrabi's flat lizard, which is found in the Northern Cape, close to the border between South Africa and Namibia. It's this spectacularly colored lizard. And it also has... um, a uv reflective throat and together with some collaborators we showed that the uv actually signals fighting ability um, and males with with purer uv throats are um are better fighters and it acts as a, a status signal so you can as a flat lizard you can evaluate um your rivals and you can figure out you know who you can beat and who you can't and um, it's a way of avoiding these costly interactions and I guess um you know we I was well um we were starting to publish on this lizard and at the time David Attenborough was working on putting together the Life in Cold Blood series which is obviously all about reptiles and um his i was contacted by one of his producers about featuring the flat lizards which which also live in very high densities and um they're very acrobatic lizards they they can do a 360 flip when they sort of jump in their in the air and and catch these black flies so so yeah they decided to include them in the in the series and um They sent a crew out and spent two weeks filming the lizards, and then David Attenborough came out for four days, and (laughs) um, so that was an absolute highlight. We spent four days with him and um, had dinner with him one night in the in the restaurant in the national park, and probably drank more wine than we should, but (laughs) um, it was just fantastic. Working with him, he was probably in his early 80s at the time. Mm. Um, you couldn't. He was just, you know, completely down to earth. Um, had lots of questions for us. Um, he was happy to sign a whole pile of books that <laughs> that we had that we sort of pulled out um, during dinner. And um, yeah, it was it was an absolute
0: highlight and an absolute pleasure working with him and so, so he is the benevolent God we all all hope he, he is. Yeah, he yeah. he absolutely
1: is. He absolutely is. Um I couldn't um say enough good things about him <laughs> and he is well worth the sort of heroes um mantle that we that we place him on. But um yeah he's he's just like you know, he comes across in his documentaries, he's, he's just, um, doesn't have an ego at all and is just very down to earth and, and interesting to, to talk to. And, um, um, we had a, a great time. He was really impressed with the, the flat lizards mm. and, uh, yeah, it was great fun working with him. I can, give you one little funny story um in the heat of the day we would head off and and have lunch at the sort of cafe in the national park and we'd we'd sit outside and the one day we were all sort of having a a beer and um the producer um came up and um well as david saw him approaching he quickly hid his beer behind the (laughs) the menu and joke that he couldn't let the the producer um see him you know drinking a beer on the job and uh yeah it was just it was quite funny he's got a he's got a great sense of humor
0: but the truth is he could probably do whatever the hell he wants uh, well totally yes, yeah. sir david that's absolutely right <laughs> that is very true <laughs> i mean it is a it's a remarkable opportunity right because lots of people don't realize with these documentaries that David isn't necessarily there every time they're filming something. Lots of the times he is just doing voiceover. So for him to be there on yeah. the site...
1: Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And I think, um, in fact, I spoke to a colleague who worked with him a lot more recently. And she told me that um, that, yeah, basically I was very fortunate. Because mm. he's now at the age where he just can't really very readily going to the field mm. and um, it probably wasn't too many years after that, 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 you know, he just wasn't going out yeah, to do yeah. this kind of stuff and it was all being done in the studio. Yeah. So we were right at the sort of tail end of him um, being in the field. And so, yeah, hanging out with him for four days and, and hearing all his stories was um, just a very fortunate experience and yeah it was interesting to hear about his early years at the Mm. BBC he told us that um you know he reached sort of quite a senior he, he was on track to um in quite a senior management position I guess and he was in charge of the BBC when it went from black and white to to color and um Realised that you know he that wasn't really what he wanted to do. He he missed doing all the nature documentaries, mm. and so he stepped back from all those managerial um, roles and and went back to to making documentaries. and he, And he also told us that in the early years, you know, he would he would say to his his manager or his producer, "We want to go down the Zambezi River for the next month and just film whatever we can." And they mm. would say that sounds like a great idea. How much money do you need for that? (laughs) What do you need for that? Off you go. And now if you were going to do something like that, you would need this ridiculous proposal. It would take, um, you know, months of preparation and Mm. paperwork and, and everything else. And you'd have to have a, you know, a very clear set of goals and, um, um, yeah, the good old days, he just missed those those good old mm. good old days where you could go
0: out and and just uh um, film very cool mm. natural history i guess well the the sequence that you filmed on those flat lizards is probably one of the more you know iconic attenborough sequences people have already seen the your slow motion footage of the lizards shooting up into the air you grabbing flies mid flight you've got to be proud of because that. Yeah. <laughs> that that's your that's, that's your work yeah that's that's so true
1: that's so true and um you know that's that's those are the fond memories I have um that's that's the stuff that you know counts more than some paper that you get in a high impact journal that is very quickly forgotten hmm. um, you you're absolutely right that's that's the stuff that that you know the public is is interested in and that's the stuff that you, you talk about um, with real fondness to, to people interested in, in lizards and natural history and people that have seen that, that footage. Mm. I don't really talk about, you know, some paper that we published (laughs) 10 years ago, (laughs) even if it was a great paper at the time. um, Mm. it, It doesn't have nearly the same, sort of um impact and and um yeah that's that as you, you're totally right that's that's what you remember
0: hmm. so having never been to africa it's portrayed as is essentially a mecca for biologists is it as uh, amazing and should i be making a pilgrimage as it, soon as possible
1: you absolutely should it totally is um The Southern African sub-region is where I have, um, you know, most of my African experience, I have worked in, in Kenya and, um, and Mozambique and places like that. But, um, there's a phenomenal biodiversity there. There is so much to be discovered that is currently being discovered. And, um, it's, it's, the 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 diversity is is through the roof Mm. um i mean it was amazing for me to come to australia because you know i grew up reading about all the fauna here and and obviously (laughs) australia is very as um and is very isolated and has this incredibly unique fauna um and it's it it's just different to to africa but um I miss all the the spectacularly colored flat lizards, the mm. chameleons, um, all the, the enormous variety of of ungulates, um, the classic African wildlife like the the lions the the hippos, the buffalo, the giraffe. I mean our holidays as kids would be you know going to the Kruger park and mm. and just driving around looking for for wildlife. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that was what sort of got me on the path to becoming a, a biologist. But, um, yeah, Africa, every biologist absolutely has to go and visit Africa. Mm. And, um, the, the challenge is, is, you know, what to see in the time that you, you have, <laughs> um, and you've got this enormous range of biomes from you know the deserts of of Namibia where there these incredible rock formations to um the classic african savanna to rainforest um amazing coastline so yeah you um you absolutely have to get over there james it's
0: it's also got a Maybe an unfortunate stereotype is being a little bit impenetrable for outsiders i mean there's you get you work it up in your head that you're either gonna get eaten by a lion or you're gonna be a white guy in the wrong place or you how know, how easy is it to just go and explore
1: um yeah, that's true that's true it It definitely does have that reputation, and um there are places you go where you need to be a little aware of your surroundings but um it's probably the classic case where the big cities are somewhat corrupted and you've mm. got to be a lot more careful in uh, whenever you go to a big city like Johannesburg for example um but the in the rural areas you know they are amazing national parks um people are i think The one common experience for people visiting Africa is just how friendly and welcoming people Mm. are. And, um, as a tourist, they really want you to have a positive impression. They want you to feel welcome. Um, I've always felt totally at ease there. Um, I mean, I did grow up there, so I have that advantage, but, um, there are so many people I know that are from other countries that continually go back year after year mm. and um it, 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 it yeah, if you you just you need you do need a plan, obviously, but um I would I would say that, you know, you're totally safe in the national parks. You can't walk around in certain areas in the way that you would in Australia mm. or North America because and people do occasionally get killed by by wildlife. Um, people get killed by elephants. They get killed by buffalo, hippos, the odd lion. But <laughs> you know, it's just a case of um, often you, if you're in a in a big five area, you would go out with a, a scout that has mm. a a rifle that knows. Um, that, that is comfortable walking around in the, in the African savannah. And, um, and that, I mean, that's what we, we basically do. You know, there are walking safaris where you literally are walking in a savannah where you could encounter a, a lion or an elephant, but, um, you know, it's, it's very rare that, that anybody has any kind of, mm. of incident. It's, it's all about common sense. Mm. Um, but everybody that I've spoken to that's gone over there, either to do field work or just as a sort of eco-tourist, always has an amazing mm. time.
0: But coming to Australia as a herpetologist is probably, probably a bit of a mecca in itself. I feel like it, Australia, we, we got the snakes we got the lizards, right? <laughs> yeah, it absolutely
1: is. It um, it's a mind blowing place to be, and um, you know, you you basically flip through field guides. You read about frillies. We've now that's another lizard that I've I've worked on. We've worked on <laughs> frilled lizards. We've worked on on blue tongues. Um, all these iconic lizards that you you read about mm. and um you know you sort of dream of of one day seeing and um and yeah so it's it's been it's been incredibly rewarding being over here and and working on um a totally new fauna and um, working on new questions that um that have, have sort of emerged you know since since moving over here mm. Um, and actually, making some a few discoveries that um, about you know some of the iconic wildlife, like blueies, for example, mm. we you know we we found out that they've got ultraviolet reflective tongues, and um, have sort of recently published a paper addressing a hypothesis about why that might be. And yeah, so little discoveries like that, um, are incredibly rewarding. Mm. Um, and the next phase of that, that project is sort of building a robotic bluey and synthesizing an ultraviolet reflective <laughs> tongue and then trying to understand how having a, a UV reflective tongue benefits the, the lizard in terms of, of survival
0: what's the next icon to work on then you've, you've got frill next you've got blueies, you've you now got someone working on armadillo lizards you're you're taking off yeah the that's, big five lizards yeah <laughs> that's right that's right
1: um well as you know uh um the sleepy lizard or the the shingle back is mm-hmm. um is on the cards yeah iguanas you know
0: big famous iguanas you gotta work on
1: yeah well that's that's kind of a sad story. We put in a a national geographic grant to work on marine iguanas in the Galapagos. And I mean, you know, as much as I do, just how cutthroat it is getting (laughs) research funding. And unfortunately we couldn't convince the national geographic society that, that they should sponsor, um, some more work on, on marine iguanas. So that, that didn't quite come through, but, um, Yeah it's good to dream so I'll carry on I'll you know continue to dream on about working on marine iguanas Mm. in the Galapagos one of these days and and hopefully (laughs) that'll that'll happen. Um, We've also worked on some pretty iconic lizards in China so um, it's called the secret toad-headed agama. It has these crazy head flaps. Um, We've worked on on that guy, so there's, we're busy writing that up, but yeah, you're totally right, um, there are all these, these goannas, um, we haven't quite got to goannas, but I have a postdoc, Simon Clulo that works a lot on goannas, so, um, by extension, my lab will be working (laughs) on, on goannas, Mm. um, yeah, so, um, so many lizards. <laughs> so little time. So little time. That's right. That's you right. obviously had
0: this fascination for wildlife from a very early age. Was it always reptiles?
1: It, it wasn't actually. Um, so as a kid, I grew up reading Gerald Darrell. He was my <laughs> childhood hero. Mm. And um, I, I um, kind of followed his path of having as many animals as i could cram into my bedroom <laughs> um as was possible and i i learned early on that if as long as i just arrived with the animal and said to my mother i've you know it followed I've, me home what are you yeah doing? that's right uh, i can't possibly take it back now she would say oh okay oh not another
0: one that's all right but if yeah
1: um if i said can i have you know, this animal, she would say, of course you can't have it. But yeah, as long as I just arrived at home with it, then it was fine. And yeah, so I had two aviaries, I had all kinds of mammals, but then, you know, I had frogs, I had um, lizards and a few snakes. And I just was always a little bit more fascinated by, by reptiles. Mm. But but, I mean, I've always had a, a broad interest in, in, um, in natural history and, and animals in general, so, I mean, I could happily work on, on other things, but mm. I guess I find lizards and snakes and, and frogs just slightly more interesting and, and perhaps in some ways more amenable to the, the questions that I'm interested in asking as a, as a
0: behavioural ecologist, but there's something about reptiles that people are just so obsessed by them. You know, especially yeah. in, in scientific circles, people form little cliques. There's the bird people, and there's the mammal people, and the yeah. insect people. But I feel like the the reptile people are full on, super passionate. Yeah, they they can be a little obsessive. It's it's
1: <laughs> absolutely true. And I mean, it's interesting because there's there is a big sort of amateur, um, community. And, Mm. um, I certainly know a lot of people in the amateur community and they're really interesting to talk to. And, um, you know, they, they have normal jobs that they're, they're doing, but then at the same time, they, they have this passion for reptiles and they, they tend to, um, have a lot of animals at home, um, and just have this real interest in in reptiles um i guess i'm slightly more on the the academic side where i'm i'm reading a wide range of of papers um that have to do with the questions that i'm interested in asking Mm. so you know i'm reading i'm reading your papers james (laughs) thanks um on (laughs) on mimicry and and um orchid mantids and and um Um, I'm reading a lot of invertebrate literature, a lot of bird literature, mammal literature, um, as long as it, it sort of relates to the question that we're, we're trying to answer. But, but yeah, I guess I'm getting off track. Um, I don't really know how to answer that question. I mean, what is it about lizards and, and reptiles um, that sort of really grabs somebody's interest? It's, it's, got to, yeah, has to do with some
0: aspect of the wiring of our brains, I Mm. suppose. And I really appreciate that the lines between professional and hobbyist herpetologists are so blurry, and particularly in insect circles, there's like a hard line between, you know, the hobbyist insect breeders and collectors never really communicate with the researchers.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I Mm. mean, that's, um, and I think that also happens with Probably with with birds to some degree as well mm. um, and those guys have a lot of um, really valuable information and insights from from maintaining animals in in captivity over many years and breeding them and um, that you know that we don't really have mm. I mean I I only have a couple of lizards at home as you've <laughs> seen we have a lot of um at Macquarie that that are all u- used in in research programs but um um that's very different from your classic amateur herpetologist that has instead of a library they would have a a room jam packed with <laughs> menagerie <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's right um a menagerie of of um snakes and and lizards that they're breeding like crazy and mm. um so so yeah but they they have really valuable knowledge that um can be particularly useful and they've been a great source of help for us particularly when we've needed animals for some of the the cognition work mm-hmm. so we've we've got um a team of of amateur herpetologists that we've become you know really friendly with over the years that have really helped us Um, locate the animals that that we need um, that have come through the lab and been involved in learning experiments and then have been sent back um, to the wild. And, um, yeah, a lot of those people know where to find, um, um, you know, populations that we're unaware of. And and, um, it's been great having that that interaction with them we've been invited to to give you know talks about our research to their society so there's the um Australian herpetological society that meets in in Sydney once a month and many quite a few people from my lab have given talks there or gone to talks and um um yeah so that that interaction is is very enriching.
0: So the lab that you run, it's, there's no bones about it. It's called the Lizard Lab. So no question about what you work on. Yeah,
1: that's right. <laughs> um, I do get some stick about that
0: because um, <laughs> um, we've worked on
1: snakes. We've worked <laughs> on frogs. We're, we are currently working on frogs. We've worked on cane toads. Um, I mean, lab so- names are always a little bit pointless They they are. (laughs) They absolutely are. And I'm so happy that um, I called it the Lizard Lab because Mm. that name has kind of taken off and um, we've got a little bit of a a global reputation, I like to think. And um, I, yeah, I feel like we've sort of, a lot of our work is sort of more publicly accessible just by virtue of the fact that we've called the lizard lab Mm. and we've you know we've had um members of the public sort of go online looking for some information and have come across the lizard lab and then contacted us Mm. um so yeah so i've got no regrets about the fact that that i called it the lizard lab (laughs) i still think yeah i mean probably 80 percent of our work is on on lizards I do have a paper on mole rats and, and, <laughs> <laughs> and another one on mimicry in um, invertebrates. Um, and in fact, I'm working with your ex-supervisor and colleague, Mariella Herberstein, <laughs> on, um, on mimicry. So um, I think mainly because we can provide lizards as predators.
0: <laughs> So there is that, <laughs> I suppose.
1: But yeah, I mean, you know, you have to sort of embrace natural history more generally. I think mm. it's, it's a mistake to, you know, just focus on, on one organism. But, but I think um, lizards have, have certainly been great for us for, for answering these questions about communication and about sociality and, mm. and family living.
0: So as a lab head... What does this mean about where your expertise is now because you're you're the the head hunter overseeing a whole bunch of other projects on everything from you know mimic creatures to sociality to communication and signaling do you feel like you have a a bag of tricks anymore or is it oh, more about um, managing other people's
1: uh, yeah it's it's a sad state of affairs James. <laughs> um um you know it's you do become more and more of a manager and your students and your postdocs learn the latest cutting edge, um, statistical analyses while you are, you know, filling out paperwork on their behalf (laughs) (laughs) and giving lectures and doing all the other things we do. So, yeah, I think, you know, what I bring to the lab is, is my experience and, um, the all the different systems i've worked on um the work that i've i've published on and the the network of people internationally that i've i've worked with but my students you know are learning skills that um i don't have or skills that i haven't used in 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 many years so yeah absolutely we're definitely in an era now where the lab head um may well have you know a bag of tricks and 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 obviously you know lots of people I work with are like that but we we can't keep up and Mm. um and and definitely our um our students are, are attending workshops and things that Um, we're not getting to and Mm. they're acquiring these amazing skills Um, but at the end of the day you know you can't replace that that experience Mm. and they they still need our help and pulling together a paper and selling an idea and and having the right
0: direction is is sort of where my role lies I suppose probably means you get to do just a much greater variety of really cool things too, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely,
0: absolutely. I do miss um,
1: not being able to get into the field as much as, uh, as I used to, but on the other hand, you know, it's really rewarding to be involved in a wide range of projects and to see the, the work that, that your students are doing mm-hmm. and,
0: and the cool results that they're getting and, and being involved in, in that for sure. I think the one time I've been out in the field with you was probably one of my most fun fieldwork experiences. Hunting water dragons by torchlighting canoes—it was great. Yeah, that's um, that's yeah. How do you beat that? Um, absolutely.
1: So um, yeah, I remember that night. That was that was such good fun. Um, you, 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 that that's
0: that's sort of what it's what it's all about, mm. I suppose. So to explain that for people listening, if you want to catch a water dragon, you got to get them while they're sleeping. Right? Absolutely right. Don't waste (laughs) your time. Even though it's a diurnal lizard, um, don't
1: waste your time going out during the day. They are um, very vigilant. They are fast. They will invariably get away from you. (laughs) Um, On the other hand, just that we know that they sleep along riverbanks. They often sleep um, either just below up against a bank in the water or very commonly in a branch overhanging the river so yeah we figured out that the best thing to do is to get in a canoe paddle down as quietly as you can pluck (laughs) them off those overhead branches put them in a in a you know a pillowcase where they um can feel secure and they're in a dark place and you can um literally not figuratively (laughs) Uh, and then you can measure them and get your dna sample or whatever you need to tag them and um send them back to the world
0: Mm. one of the the great things about your lab is you go to a lot of effort to communicate what you do you have a very uh content heavy website and facebook page and, and everything yeah, I think it's really important
1: um, and it's very rewarding when you interact with the public or um, we occasionally have groups of school kids that come around to the lab and mm-hmm. we pull out lizards and and um, talk to them about the biology of, of lizards. Every time we publish a paper, we try and um, um, put those those results in a sort of digestible form out to the public and we do that on on facebook and on twitter in media releases and um and you know where where something is particularly interesting like the the uv blue tongues we'll um we'll push that through the media office at at macquarie Mm. or, or another outlet um and just try and get the the word out there
0: all right well if people wanted to check it out the website is whitinglab.com
1: that's right and um we use that to to put out blog posts about field work about our um uh, our new results you can see who's in the lab who what the work that they're doing and uh yeah so there's a whole host of information on our on our web page and you have a Facebook page. And we have a Facebook page. <laughs> um, if you just type in Lizard Lab on Facebook, um, or you can link to it from our um, from our webpage. and we try and put more sort of fun stuff on the Facebook page, I suppose, mm-hmm. more um, photos and um, um, any interesting bits and pieces about goings on in the lab. Sometimes some crazy photos of social events in the lab <laughs> dressing up for Halloween and, and stuff like that. That tends to go onto our, our Facebook page.
0: And, of course, you're on Twitter as well. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> At lizard
1: underscore lab. That's right. Yeah. So I run that page and then every lab member has a, a Twitter account and um, um, they're often much better on on twitter than i am but um yeah by all means be great please do follow us on on twitter and we put out lots of photos of our study animals goings on in the field um any interesting visitors to the lab um um yeah lots of photos of our of
0: our lizards solving complex problems and and things of that nature (laughs) well i feel like we kind of have barely scratched the surface of the stories you could tell. I definitely want to hear more about these toad-headed gamut lizards from China, but I should probably let you put the dogs to bed Yeah, they, they get that possum. So. That's, that's right. <laughs> Dougie and Winnie are always on
1: the lookout for um, that were possum. They haven't caught it yet, though. But... Um, <laughs> Thanks so much for having me on the the podcast. No worries, we'll we'll
0: do this again sometime. I look forward to it. Thanks so much. Thank Thank you. And thank you guys for listening. Make sure to check us out on social media at InSituScience or, as always, on InSituScience.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.